the starts of a, a necessary framework to ensure you're supporting your multilingual learners, right? You have to have a view your population of students from and, and your population of educators from an asset-based lens. You have to tie efforts into like a broader strategy. And then you have to be attuned to and just know your population of multilingual learners and understand that collective responsibility. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. I'm really excited to bring you this very timely episode on a topic that many of us, myself included, are not experts on. And yet it is really one of the most important things to understand when advocating for providing the resources educators need to best serve multilingual learners. That topic is how to secure funding, and more specifically, how to use ESSER funds before it is too late. We've already done a lot of legwork for you on our website, where our How to Buy section explains how Title I, Title II, Title III, and ESSER funds can be used to support multilingual programs. But we wanted to expand our knowledge and share what we've learned with you. We brought in Rosario Quiroz Villarreal and Cece Matheny to discuss some findings from research they've been doing on how districts are using ESSER funds to best support multilingual learners and where the opportunities are to capitalize more deeply. We also published a blog post on this very topic. As always, you can find that post along with many other multimedia resources on our EL community. Just go to elevationeducation.com and click on the resources button on the top right of the screen. Here's what we'll cover in this conversation. What parameters do districts have for spending ARP ESSER funds, specifically relating to multilingual learners? How are some districts already using these funds to offer high-impact supports for their language learners? What guidance can we offer educators who want to advocate for their district to include and even prioritize this population of students and their ESSER fund spending plans? We discuss these questions and much more with Director of Policy and Advocacy Rosario Quiroz Villarreal and Policy Analyst C.C. Matheny, both of the organization TNTP. As you'll hear in our conversation, Rosario and C.C. have spent a lot of time learning about best practices for using ESSER funds, and they have a lot of valuable information to share. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Rosario Quiroz Villarreal and Cece Matheny, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thanks so much, Steve. We're so glad to be here. Good morning. So, Rosario, you've done this before. Cece, this is your first time. Um, I'm excited to have both of you. I read an article on the TNTP blog about ESSER funds, and I was kind of shocked by some of the statistics I saw. And you all are doing really, really good work talking about and kind of getting the word out about how we can better use these funds, particularly to serve our multilingual learners. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, how districts are and maybe are not using these funds. Um, but I want to start by framing the conversation with some numbers that you all highlighted in that um, recent TNTP blog post that I talked about, and we'll link to it on the show notes as well. The numbers I saw there were 2.8 million multilingual learners across the country attend school in a district that did not plan to spend ESSER funding on interventions targeting or targeted to them. Um, and that's according to categoriz categorization of spending within the Burbio data set. And I know that data is a bit nuanced, and I'm sure you'll talk about that. But that sounds like a big miss, but perhaps also like a really big opportunity. Yes, uh, Steve, it's a great opportunity indeed. I mean, when we're talking about 
ARP ESSER funds, it's that third funding that went to school specifically, we're talking about $122 billion. It is the largest single investment that the country has ever made in public K-12 education. And it's more than double all title programs combined. And, you know, when I saw that number, I couldn't help but think about um, a letter that went to the House and the Senate recently about the underfunding of Title III programs, specifically for multilingual learners. And advocates were asking for $2 billion. So when I see $122 billion, I think, mm. of course, that funding should have been used to supplement and address the impact of this pandemic on uh, multilingual learners. But unfortunately, that's not what we've seen. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's shocking. I mean, it really, really is. Um, and I mean, having been, I worked as a teacher for a long time and, and kind of, I think everybody who's worked in education has always been through these kind of budget seasons where it's like, it seems to be like last minute. Okay. We have all this money. How are we going to spend it? Um, and that leads to obviously not the best decision making. So our goal and purpose here and your goal and purpose is to get the word out so that that doesn't happen and so that these plans can be made um, in advance. Um, let's let's get some background information out, though, before we can kind of move forward here. Um, how much how much time do districts have at this point to spend ESSER funds? This is something that's been going on for a while. Um, I know there's been talk about extensions. Um, but I think many people like myself may be unaware of kind of what that looks like. Right. So initially, uh, the timeline was that districts and states have until September 30th, 2024 uh, to spend the funds. Um, but getting a little bit more specific there, they actually have until that date, September 30th, 2024, to obligate the funds, which means officially committing them um, with 120 days beyond that to actually liquidate them. So finish spending the dollars. Um, and in May of this year, uh, the Department of Education put out guidance indicating that states could apply for an extension to liquidate those funds. So districts might get if their states apply for this extension uh, up to 18 months beyond that initial deadline to finish liquidating those dollars. Uh, they still have to obligate them by that initial deadline. So it's not like they can, you know, in 2025 decide on a new way to spend the money, um, but there's just a little more time to actually finish spending spending the funds. That's super helpful. And I know for a fact, there are many people in the know with a lot of other things who, who don't have that information. So just to have that information out is clear. I mean, people are really busy and doing day-to-day <laughs> -day work. Uh, and so I, again, like I think folks like you who are putting this this information out there are super valuable. Let's Another kind of question that maybe people are unaware of, um, what, and this may be a longer type of question and forgive me if it's kind of unfair. So maybe you can outline a few, but I'm, I'm curious as to what can and can't ESSER funds be used for when it comes to supporting multilingual learners? I mean, here at Elevation, we've kind of seen ESSER funds be used in a variety of ways, but I'd love to, if you could give us kind of a brief outline uh, so folks are aware. Yeah, so ESSER funds are overall quite unrestricted, um, and there's an extensive list of allowable uses encompassing both sort of the public health measures like COVID testing, as well as typical education spending items, teacher salaries, educational technology, facility repairs, all of those things. So essentially, as long as the funds are being used to uh, 
prevent, prepare for, or respond to the pandemic, um, including its impact on social, emotional, mental health, and academic needs of students, then it's probably an allowable use. Um, and with regards to supporting multilingual learners specifically, that might mean um, the funds could be spent on extended learning time programs. So an after-school program that's targeted to multilingual learners could be professional development to better prepare all teachers uh, in a district uh, on working with multilingual learners, um, training in culturally responsive instruction, translation services, outreach efforts to reach families of multilingual learners, the list goes on. So kind of all of those are totally allowable uses of these funds. Um, and I think Rosario can talk a little bit more about the uh, right. specific requirements there. So Steve, there was also just 20% that at the federal level, um, schools, districts were required to put towards addressing learning loss mm -hmm. and to support learning acceleration. So that's the portion that really went towards uh, those student interventions. And that's really, it's within that 20% that you could say, and we need those targeted approaches for our multilingual learners. I also wanna be really clear that 20% was the baseline. It's just at least 20% has gotcha. to be reserved for this, but it could be more. And we have seen some districts do more. We have some, seen some districts who barely reached that mark. And we've seen advocates who then went and said, no, you need to increase that amount because it doesn't um, get to that federal requirement. Right. Just, just a quick follow-up on, on everything you just said. And again, it's super useful. Cece, you were telling me, you, you basically, you didn't say it. I'll say it and you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's it's kind of a blank slate almost, like using this phone doesn't seem too restrictive. You did say that. Is is that, in, your, in both of your experience with this, is that, it sounds strange to say, but is it kind of prohibitive in the sense that it's just so broad that people are like, that making those choices becomes more difficult or has that not been an issue in your in your experience? Steve, I think that between um, the unrestricted funds and how quickly uh, districts and states were um, required to put the plans together, it did make it quite hard to say this is the best use of uh, these funds. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that can be that can be tricky. But Again, like getting the word out now that we're a little bit beyond kind of crisis mode, I hope we can kind of start thinking a little bit more about this. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm, I'm really like curious about a lot of things. I want to go to kind of evidence like is is does any evidence exist at this point um, that you've seen? I know you've done a lot of work on this of ESSER funds being used to, to implement interventions that have demonstrably helped solve key challenges like high quality instructional materials for multilingual learners. Reclassification is another obviously huge uh, piece of data that we look at. Interpretation service, I mean, the list goes on and on. But have we seen evidence that it is that those funds are being used and they're working? So this is actually the question that kind of launched us into this research is we wanted, we were not seeing a lot being reported on at least uh, to this question. And so we wanted to dig in and, and find out the answer. Um, and so our research started with looking at spending plans, um, which 
you know, that's just what districts have planned to spend the dollars on and not necessarily what they've actually spent them on and 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 getting at kind of all those implementation challenges and, and results. But we started out just looking at, you know, our districts planning to spend funds on these evidence-based practices that we know will, will support multilingual learners. Um, and we looked at spending plans in five different states uh, with significant populations of multilingual learners, and we identified 100 or so districts in those five states that were planning on spending a specific dollar amount from these USER dollars on supports for multilingual learners. Um, and that was about 10% of the districts in that data set. Um, and what we learned there is about half of those districts were planning on spending some ESSER funds on their bilingual workforce, including teacher salaries, as well as uh, recruitment incentives and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, about a third were planning to spend uh, the money on extended learning time programs, so after school and summer programs for multilingual learners. Uh, about a quarter were planning on spending um, on supports for engaging with families, so translation services, hiring family outreach liaisons, um, and then also a quarter on high-quality instructional materials for multilingual learners. So we did find some evidence that there are districts prioritizing multilingual learners in their spending plans, um, but it's certainly not across the board. So uh, what we're kind of really focused on now is finding out, you know, are, how is that going and and what are their results so far? Are they really, is, is this, are these dollars going to work to support multilingual learners? Yeah, so you're at the beginning of that work, but it's good to know that like you identified some really, I mean, two really big, you know, issues right now that we talk a lot about on the podcast and in our community in general is, you know, making sure that we have the right teachers in place, um, addressing the teacher shortage, hiring the right folks, retaining them. Um, and then the 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 idea of high quality um, instructional materials as well. Now, earlier, you mentioned professional development, all of those things, family engagement um, and interpretation services, all of those things are obviously crucial and perhaps now more than ever. So it's good to know that you're at least at the point where you're identifying that districts are, in fact, using this money to uh, help mitigate some of the challenges posed or brought up by a lot of the uh, the 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 issues that we're facing again with those teacher shortage issues and the, and the lack of high quality instructional materials. I'm not going to ask you to name any names here, but I would love to know if there are like particular, and feel you can name names if you want to, it's up to you. Are, are there any particular districts that you know of that are doing good work based on based? I'm sure there are. The answer to that question is yes. But like, do you know of any, have you seen any, have you talked with any? Um, and maybe the, the, the most important part of the question and the one that might be a little bit more comfortable for you to answer is what makes them successful and, most importantly, what can other districts learn from them? Yeah, so we are still in the process of uh, communicating with districts, definitely continue to be open to having those conversations where districts feel like they have great practices. But for the districts that we have spoken with, a few things have stood out. To, to me and Cece, please, you know, fill in if I'm missing anything that you think is also important. But I'd say that they are strongly asset-based. That's one huge thing. For example, um, Gadsden ISD staff called out that their district is really tightly knit. Um, and they shared that they have the staff to support their students. But maybe those the uh, their staff members don't yet have the... Um, 
necessary qualifications to support multilingual learners. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's about supporting their existing staff to secure those last few college credits or those professional learning opportunities to level up to become bilingual or ESL certified educators. So that's where they're gonna allocate some of their funds this fall. Uh, two, they're tying their efforts into an existing strategy or a systems level structure of support. Um, I mean, we heard from Chicago Public Schools that they were already providing supplemental instructional time to students uh, through after school or summer programs. And they have their system in place uh, through their Office of Language and Cultural Education to offer professional learning to district staff. So when they um, had to allocate the ARP ESSER funds, their approach was not about creating something new. It mm -hmm. was about supporting something that existed to function better and to make sure that it reached the student populations that were most heavily impacted by the pandemic. And then finally, uh, I would say that all of these districts that we've spoken with are very well attuned to the needs of their multilingual learners, and they understand the collective responsibility for supporting these students. For all of the districts that we've spoken with, they are not within departments that are functioning in silos. Mm -hmm. And they are, when, when they talk about that, they talk about the collaboration that happens across departments on initiatives to make sure that um, improving outcomes for multilingual learners is consistently integrated. So they're really, you know, the responsibility of holding the line and improving outcomes never falls on just the English learner department or the ESL certified staff. Uh, and returning to the Chicago Public Schools example, um, when the district prioritized high dosage tutoring, their immediate initial response was to say, all right, well, our office is going to collaborate with this tutoring initiative to make sure that all of these tutors are receiving uh, professional learning around uh, language development, uh, scaffolds, and um, just supporting multilingual learners to develop language across all four domains. So, uh, and then, and then we also have the example from Gadsden ISD where we spoke with their federal grants manager. And Steve, this was um, a woman who started her career in education as a bilingual educator. Yep. So for her, the multilingual learner population was a priority. And she, they, this population of students was just consistently on her mind as she was submitting and resubmitting plans to the New Mexico Public Education Department. So, I mean, I think that those three things really speak to um, the starts of a, a necessary framework to ensure you're supporting your multilingual learners, right? You have to have a view your population of students from and, and your population of educators from an asset-based lens. You have to tie efforts into like a broader strategy and then you have to be attuned to and just know your population of multilingual learners and understand that collective responsibility. Yeah, you know, everything that you said, it 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 sounds so kind of, I'm not going to say obvious, but logical, like that's what you need to make these things happen. It's easier to describe districts that are doing that to like make changes in districts that aren't necessarily doing that. But there are the good news is that there are roadmaps out there 
Um, I'm, I'm everything that you just said, I kept thinking I recently, and I'll name names cause it's a good thing. I recently visited, um, Prince William, uh, County public schools in Virginia. I was doing some work down there with what they were doing with, with English learners and, and math. Um, and what made their program so successful is everything that you're just talking about right now. There are no silos, right? Those silos are broken down. Everything that they're doing with academic language necessary to be success for uh, multilingual learners to be successful in math ties in with um, with their district strategy that was written by the superintendent. There's a, there's a there's four main pieces in there, and it ties right into one that's about collaboration and breaking down salaries salaries. Why did I say that? Breaking down silos, not salaries. Um, and and you know that they're doing their best to make sure that that all teachers have the PD necessary to be able to take that asset based approach, which again is a term we hear all the time. Um, but in order to do that, you really need to have some, uh, you know, some strategies and, and perhaps some PD in place to to do that. So it's a great roadmap. I mean, and I think that's, you know, districts that are that are putting putting those things in place or had put those things in place before they had access to these funds are probably going to be more well-equipped to actually access them and use them the right way. CC, anything to add there? Um, I think just another thing that has stood out to me in speaking with some of these districts is, uh, and it it goes along with everything Rosario was sharing, but the community engagement that they've undertaken, um, they all spoke in different ways about, you know, parent meetings, family meetings, um, lots of different ways that they've reached out and and learned what the community is asking for and what they really care about. Um, so that has stood out to me. I think it, you know, looks a lot different in a big district from a small district and uh, it can look, look different ways, but um, they've all spoken about uh, engaging with families and students and, and kind of elevating those voices and, and hearing from directly from students and, and families, what they care about. Yeah. Important point. I'm glad you brought it up. We've talked a lot about that. And I mean, you need that buy-in for sure from everybody um, involved. I, I want to dive a little bit more into this whole issue of kind of silos. Um, it, it 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 can really make it difficult to get a seat at the table when large scale decisions are being made, particularly for I've seen that happen in multilingual programs or ESOL programs or ELL programs, whatever your term you're using from around the country. Um, you you talked about it at, at kind of a high level. This idea of like all these districts had you know, practices and strategies in place to make sure that those silos don't exist. I'd love to get a little bit more specific. What examples have you seen of of these silos having existed but being broken down? And what would you recommend EL departments do to help ensure that there is ample collaboration um, and support? So I won't name names here because we're still uh, in conversation with this district, but um, there is a district in California that really spoke about the impact of policy on their approach to uh, supporting multilingual learners, uh, to making sure that multilingual learners were integrated in strategy. Uh, And California um, put out this initiative that said, we want at least half of our uh, students to graduate bilingual and biliterate. So that then uh, signaled to their school board, we are expected to reach these goals, so we have to get on board. 
And, uh, it, you know, maybe this is something else that's very obvious, but leadership at the highest levels, being on board and understanding the multilingual learner population really does matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, when we speak to or when we spoke with Chicago public schools, we need to also recognize we're talking about um, Pedro Martinez as their superintendent. I think superintendent is not actually the term they use in Chicago public schools, but he has been someone who has championed multilingual learners for a, a, the majority of his career. So when you have someone like that at the top who's saying, we need to make sure that our multilingual learner department is at the table when we're making these decisions, it really does matter. And, you know, when, so we, we haven't talked about this yet, and I don't think we mentioned it too much in the blog post, but before we dug into the district plans, we also dug into the state plans to see what are states saying about prioritizing multilingual learners? Are they um, at least mentioning these highest level things that uh, we know will make a difference for our multilingual learners, the, the educator workforce, high quality instructional materials, et cetera. And um, we saw that California had one of the strongest callouts for um, this population of students. And then when we dug into the data set, we also noticed that the California districts happened to be the ones that were most likely to uh, allocate actual funding mm. for this population of students. Yeah, you know, and, and I'll break that formula down even a little bit more and I'll go back to my kind of Prince William example. And I won't mention that we were talking about naming names a lot. Today. I don't mention <laughs> actual names of the people, even though they're doing great things. Like we profiled this district because they were doing such great work. But, you know, guess what? One of the major factors was in the relationship between the math coordinator in the district and the EL coordinator. What did the math coordinator or the director of math programs bring with them that allowed this to happen? Take a guess. Were they at one point bilingual educators themselves? I actually don't know if that's, I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question probably, but this person provided professional development for surrounding districts on supporting, wait for it, English learners in math classes. Mm. So huh. he came to the district last year with like this vision and this idea of hey we we this is what we can do and and they they recruited him i think probably for one i don't know the answer to that but i imagine for one of for that that was probably one of the reasons they brought him in so yeah that happens at a, at a high level but it happens departmentally too that collaboration um and i think it's really really important so um that's great that's great uh that's great background info um so I have I have like two more kind of content related questions before we wrap up. Um, one is I know that this is just like the beginning of the work that you're doing. And we, you know, jumped on the blog post that you wrote because it's just so interesting. Um, and I think everything that you're telling us now is really, really useful. But what are your next steps? And really, like, what do you kind of hope to accomplish here? And and I guess I would also put out like if people are listening, like how can people get involved in this and and what can they do? So we are continuing to interview districts because the ultimate plan is to build out these case studies. We want to get really clear on um, what things districts can do so that it's replicable for them. If they are interested in um, 
in getting in contact with us. Steve, you mentioned that you'll link the blog post uh, to the description of mm -hmm. this podcast. You can click on that link. You can read the blog post. And at the end, there's uh, the option to fill out a survey to let us know a little bit about what's going on at your district and to let us know if you're interested in having a conversation with us. Uh, once we have that information, we are uh, happy to reach out to you to find some time to, to talk. You can also uh, reach out to us via email. I don't know that it's helpful for me to spell it out here. <laughs> Go ahead, spell it out and I'll provide it in um, the show notes as well. It's rosario.quirosvillarreal at tntp.org. And Cece, you want to share yours? Yep, it's cc.mathini at tntp.org. And I'll, I'll put those both down in print and link to them as well there. And I will just say, like, for the record, having worked with both of these wonderful people, uh, Rosario now a couple times and CC the first time, but we've talked a lot about this and prepared for this um, quite a bit. They're wonderful to work with and they're doing really important and great work. So if you can reach out, I think you definitely should. And they're also quite responsive, which is a nice thing <laughs> as well. I'm going to ask you one question and I, like not to let everybody know kind of how the, 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 the podcast is made, but I do send like a set of questions to people. So we know what we're talking about and it becomes quite conversational, but I always have additional questions. So I'm going to throw one at you now that it was not on kind of our, our little, um, our question sheet, but I can't help but ask if somebody's listening right now, uh, no matter what position they're in, maybe they're an EL specialist, maybe they're an administrator, maybe they're a school leader who has the kind of real power to, to make decisions like these. What what step should they be taking right now if they haven't really done anything like the many districts out there to use these funds that are available to support their multilingual learners? One thing is really hard. I feel like I have to couple two things together. Bring it. So Give me a couple. That's a bonus. I would say is go look at your multilingual learner data. How are those students faring on um their end of year assessments on their language proficiency and compare that to the rest of your student population to identify if there are inequities uh, in place. And then if so, go and speak to the, the teachers who are supporting these students, speak to the students themselves, speak to their parents, speak to the community-based organizations that are primarily serving these students and ask them, what is it that you need? Because we, we want you to succeed. We want the system to work for you. And I bet that they, their responses are gonna be rich with specific things that can take place within the local context to ensure improved outcomes. Something that many teachers and school leaders are already doing, except now you may actually have the funding and the ability to, to address those concerns. So it's not necessarily a whole lot of extra work. That's great. Um, and again, would... it's like, it seems kind of obvious, but it's important to say it because sometimes we don't get there. Cece, sorry, I cut you off. No, I just wanted to add, and I can't top Rosario's answer there, but I think my initial instinct was go look up what your district spending plan is and recognize that those plans are not set in stone and that there's time left to make some course corrections, make changes to those plans, and, you know, reprioritize multilingual learners if they weren't to, to, to begin with. So I think 
coupling with, you know, talking to people, looking at the data, learning, um, you can also advocate and, and educate yourself, you know, what is your district planning on, on spending these funds on and, and how can we make changes if they're needed? That's great. And the two kind of sides of the answers that you both gave shows me why you two work so well together, because they're they're different, <laughs> but both really, really important. Um, and we need them both. Okay, as we wrap up, um, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask everybody who comes in the podcast may or may not be related to what we're talking about today, but it's a kind of a fun question. Um, I would love it if you each of you would kind of give us um, the title or the name of a book or a resource that's influenced you either personally or professionally that that folks might be interested um, in, in reading. I can go first. Um, this might be cliche and it's a podcast episode. So Steve, I'm sure you've heard it, but um, an episode of This American Life had a really big impact on me professionally. Uh, the episode is called Three Miles. I think it came out in 2015. Um, and it's about two schools in the Bronx and students at these schools. But more broadly, it's about inequities in our educational system, school segregation, racial injustice. Um, and I listened to it when I was working not far from those schools, also in New York City. Um, and it really echoed and crystallized for me a lot of what I was observing and hearing from my own students. Um, and it is kind of what led me to want to work in education policy. I was working in direct service at the time. So um, it solidified for me my my desire to, to work in policy. And ultimately, that's led me to where I am now at TNTP. I love that's that. That's great. I, yeah, I feel like I'm learning about you right here, Cece. <laughs> love that. Um, and I'd say for me, it's um, Tara Yoso's framework on community cultural wealth. Um, Steve, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we're always talking about uh, having an asset-based perspective uh, for our learners, but um, sometimes that can feel a bit abstract. So mm -hmm. reading this framework for me really clarified, oh, these are all of the strengths that our, our multilingual learners are coming into school with, our students from low-income backgrounds are also coming into school with. And, you know, within that community cultural wealth, she talks about aspirational capital or um, that that belief in in the future, that hope in the future that um, that students often have for themselves, that familial capital or that support that they're getting from their relatives, the social capital um, of just, you know, who do you know in your community who's willing to support you, the navigational capital of um, going into systems that aren't always designed for multilingual learners and figuring out how to navigate them to get to um, those aspirations. That resistant capital when um, you are seeing something that, that contradicts what um, you are experiencing or learning at home or you're not necessarily... Um, getting the support that you need, but you're, but, but resistant capital is really about saying, no, this is something that it, it's that fight. It's mm -hmm. that I advocate for myself and I know how to do that. And then uh, the linguistic capital, right? Our multilingual learners are coming into schools, uh, speaking and, and having the potential to speak multiple languages really well. How are we protecting that? How are we making sure that we uplift that? and that we are making sure that that's something that stays with our students mm -hmm. throughout their educational career. 
Yeah, that's great. I think anything we can do uh, to make the term take an asset-based approach less nebulous and more tied to a framework is useful. It's funny when I, so we um, elevation we give away five scholarships every year to, to to students who are multilingual learners or are at some point. And I I interview them on the podcast. There's I think three this year that that are out. It's really they're really great conversations. Like my no offense, it's fun to talk with you both, but it's like more fun to talk with students. <laughs> I get it. I get it. And, and w- one of the reasons it's so fun is because they talk about all of the all of the like um the the terms that we use all the time in a way that makes sense like they'll talk about what it means to take an asset based approach but they'll never use that term because they don't know what it is they just know what it feels like and so they have a way of really like bringing out all that jargon in a way that makes sense and i think if we if we if we look at that along with a framework that you just mentioned we're in a really good position to be able to to apply some of the strategies and changes that we might want to make. Um, but yeah, it's always, always fun to chat with those students. They're, they're an inspiration. So last question, you mentioned the, um, the blog post, which we'll, which we'll link to, there's a survey on there. They, people can get in touch with you through there. Any other way that would be, uh, good to learn about kind of the work that you both are doing? Definitely go visit uh, TNTP.org. A lot of our work right now is really grounded on um, learning acceleration for students, not remediation Mm -hmm. and um, instructional coherence, meaning um, is the instruction that students are receiving across the day and then into um, supplemental after school, or I mean, I know we're now at the end of summer, but summer programs, is it all working in tandem towards um, the grade level standards? We need to make sure that that's happening for all students across the board. Great. Well, we will link to both of your emails. We'll link to the blog posts. We'll also link to the website in general. So there'll be lots of ways that people can reach out. I highly recommend that they do. Um, We have talked about, and I'll preview a little bit about trying to do some more work together on this. So hopefully this will just be the beginning of some more resources that we can collaborate on to kind of help people be able to use these funds um, that are available only for a temporary amount of time to best support multilingual learners. So hopefully this is the beginning of something a lot bigger, but um, for now, I want to thank both of you for taking all the time, not only the time that we chatted now, but the time that it's taken to kind of prepare this and all of the work that you've done uh, to lead up to this point. So thank you both so much. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.